I love good death experiences. And that means that, you know, the animal is sleeping, the animal is comfortable, the animal is pain-free, and the family feels like they have the space to grieve. What could you do better in euthanasia visits? She's got some ideas. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and Dr. Kathleen Cooney, founder of the Companion Animal Euthanasia Training Academy, is my doctor, delving into the ways to improve and smooth out the emotionally fraught euthanasia appointment and care at your practice. She shares practical tips for the pre and during euthanasia times, as well as her big picture reasons for why this is so important for every veterinarian to think about. First, Kathleen, how did you become an educator, a thinker, a consultant in the euthanasia business? How did you start? An awakening to a calling. And it came from the identification by my team I was working with in Michigan at the time, who basically said, you know, Dr. Cooney, you're good at this. And you don't (laughs) shy away from the appointments like the other doctors do. Maybe we should be giving you more. And I said, you know, that feels good to me because I just love hearing stories. I love witnessing the human-animal bond in such a way that fulfills my heart. And I know I can do good. Did you know at the time when you were reacting well to these and they sort of, you know, satisfied you and made you content and gave you purpose, you felt good about these appointments and knew that other people, other veterinarians, other veterinary team members maybe struggle with these visits. How did it feel? Did you feel weird about that? No. And I'll say it took a while for me to really pick up on what was happening. You know, I was, this was just a couple years out of vet school, really, where it became obvious that this was a passion of mine to support animals at the end of life. So it, you know, it took a while to really come to terms with recognizing what this was, you know, that this was my future. And no, you know, really maybe more of even an exploration of that is, you know, yeah, if, if other vets came to me and say, why do you like doing euthanasia? I wouldn't have been able to say in the beginning what it was. But now, after so many years of really reflecting on it and processing it in my own mind, is that I just love stories. I love to slow down in a busy day. I love what euthanasia provides to me as a veterinarian. But way more important, of course, is I love good death experiences. And that means that, you know, the animal is sleeping, the animal is comfortable, the animal is pain-free. And the family feels like they have the space to grieve, that they can tell me those those deep, dark secrets sometimes of what it was like to prepare for this end of life journey with their pet and what the struggles that they had going through it. And of course, all the enriching parts of their life, which made that pet so wonderful to them. It's just a big picture that all really connected with me as a human and then as a veterinarian in particular at the same time. I think I was especially intrigued because I I think I ran across you online and it talked about the fact that you consult with veterinary practices, independently owned veterinary practices for a period of time. You may still do. I know you have other jobs in addition to this, but I thought that was interesting because I think right now the landscape for euthanasia is either practices do it themselves or there is also an attractive option of, well, we hand this off. People want to do it at home and we don't really do at home. So we hand it off to one of these kind of growing services and companies out there. 
who hire veterinarians to do this at home. And that's another option. But it seemed like you might be helping practices think it all the way through about how they're going to manage that. And I just wondered how it went from you personally being good with these euthanasias in your own practice to sort of expanding that out into, I would like to talk to people in other practices about the entire process of how they manage euthanasias. Yeah. You know, as life always unfolds, it's very organic and, you know, things can be very purposeful saying that, yes, this is what I want to do is train other hospitals, how to perform euthanasia and really capture all those wonderful components that I had shaped over the years and hone my skills that I wanted to share it with them. But that's really not how I started out. I started out with (laughs) just, you know, very simply working in a private practice, finding that euthanasia spoke to me, that I was good at it, like we were just talking about. And then I, I did believe, though, and still do, that there was the opportunity to say goodbye in the home, you know? So, so while I was practicing in the hospital for a couple of years, I thought, you know, home is also extremely special. And the more home euthanasias that I did, the more that that, you know, really became true, really kind of rose to the top. So I started a home euthanasia service and it was in that, that I started to realize how little veterinarians knew about the good death experience. And what we actually referred to in my euthanasia training academy as the good death revolution, you know, and and really these modern best practices. So people started to come to me and they were asking, you know, what is this recipe, this perfect blend of, you know, medicine and experience that is, you know, making me so busy in what I was doing with my home service, because we got up to nine doctors and five support staff helping families in Colorado. And so then writing books and getting involved with the AVMA to help with their euthanasia guidelines and doing research, everything that I possibly could. And most of it was centered on home euthanasia. Yeah. And then I realized with starting my companion animal euthanasia training academy, that while we were doing really good work in the mobile sector, in the home field, we weren't giving enough due diligence to the hospital setting, right? Because I'd always said, as soon as I got got really passionate about home euthanasia, that that's where it should be. Yes. You know, that's where we should try to move euthanasia to the home setting as much as possible. And while I still believe that, there are thousands of animals, you know, dying regularly, even daily in the hospital setting. So we need to make that even better. So my training academy, CADA, as we call it for short, created what we call the U-Harmony program. And that is designed to take, you know, all of those best components of euthanasia, whether or not it's in the home or in the hospital, and help these teams to implement it into their current protocols or their standard operating procedure. So yeah, it was a natural evolution to say, what do I do well? What do I see others doing well? And now let's take that and share it with all the hospitals out there that are interested in learning more, right? That have really identified that they could be doing better for their families, for their clients and for their patients. So I'm absolutely loving bringing more training into the hospital setting. So let me ask, so as an overview, I guess we could tackle it as an overview first, or I could ask, I mean, I'm sure there are places that are, there are recommendations you make in talking about how your ideas would enter into their processes. There are harder places to do that and easier places to do that. But may I ask, as an overview, how do you think an ideal euthanasia visit might happen in a hospital? And then as an overview, are there parts in there a less than ideal that often happens 
everyone has the best of intentions, but because of the, the speed at which things happen or, or the fact that people are busy, the optimal visit just doesn't happen. So I guess we could tackle it from the ideal world. Oh, I wish all these visits look like this in the hospital. Or we could tackle it from, oh, here's what the rough day looks like. Love it. Love it. So any department in what they provide, whether or not that's, you know, surgery to preventive medicine to oncology, and now in this case, euthanasia should have really good standard operating procedures. And those standard operating procedures, also known as just clinical guidelines, clinical mm -hmm. practice guidelines, should look at the appointment from beginning to end, right? And euthanasia, because it's so emotional, we definitely have to think of it that way. So we actually talk about uh, the 14 essential components of good euthanasia, okay. which includes pre-planning. We should be talking to families about what kinds of things they need to be thinking about before euthanasia, such as where do they want to gather? Who do they want to be there? What special touches are they interested in? Like, do they want to bring in uh, you know, special blankets or beds that the pet loved and was comfortable with? Or do they want to have a reading? Do they want to bring in candles, music, things yeah. like that, all available? So, so pre-planning is going to be job number one, and that can be done with phone staff or on the website. But then when we're actually ready to schedule, and this is all getting back to your original question of kind of what does that look like in ideal euthanasia, is that phone call or that interaction with the client with scheduling euthanasia is rich with empathy understanding and compassion, right? And it's not uncommon for a client to call up to a hospital and say, I need to euthanize my dog. And the staff rarely switches their tone. They're just kind of like they're in their jam, right? They're just of going course. with their normal routine of what a day is like in a veterinary hospital and don't really transition into what's happening or what's about to be scheduled uh, by this client. So that I love. I think that's such an important part of what we're talking about here is getting the phone staff to pare it down to, to get in that headspace with the client. Can I ask, before we jump ahead, I want to ask about this because when you talked about the pre-planning, it sounded like the kind of work that's done by people who do this all day long at a cemetery or a funeral home, people who specialize in someone is dying or going to die, and they specialize in these conversations is what they do. So they sort of task bundle. It's their whole job, and they're used to these conversations. And it's kind of what you're saying is it's kind of like asking the front desk people at the ER to also be ready to like slow down and have a conversation about last rites. And I can just see how that track must grind. And you mentioned on the calls, like, that would require them to stop. I guess if you have clear SOPs, we could talk about that. They have to stop their normal thing of managing a call and switch to a different kind of call. You are so right. And Brendan, you are checking all my boxes right here of just the things that we need to think <laughs> about, truly, that we need to think about when we say as a veterinary team, we're going to offer euthanasia services. Well, euthanasia is different than everything else that we provide because of that. Because of the fact that we are now talking end of life, the clients have special needs, they need sensitivity, and not all front staffers are ready for that, right? It's hard to totally pick up another hat and put that on and be ready to have such a different conversation. So the CATA program, myself, we've always advocated for what we call a euthanasia attendant somebody who can be available for euthanasias from beginning to end. So once the client and the patient arrive to when they depart, okay. however, 
the euthanasia attendant can also be where calls are routed to. So this is somebody on the team who gets it, who understands how to have these conversations and is in that headspace to do so from the moment they pick up the phone. And, and so ideally that's somebody on the team that for the day is designated as euthanasia attendant, meaning that when a client calls up and they say, I need to schedule euthanasia, the front desk triages them to that person. And yeah. that person is ready to go, right? And ready to have that conversation. So not all hospitals can do that. Right. But that I think is definitely something we need to aspire to. So that does make sense. In that case, does it wind up being a situation where, as you found, people told you, hey, you're good at that. So it's going to need someone who is an advocate for this kind of care already. Or when you go into practices that don't have this yet, so they think they want to improve it or they want to do things differently and they're excited about this and bring you in. Do all those hospitals that you would go into and run this training, do they all have someone who's already interested and is already an advocate? Or do you sometimes have to come in and talk to them all and they have to sort out who's going to be responsible for this? Because nobody just throws their hand up and says, I want to be the euthanasia attendant. You know, what's crazy is often there is at least one (laughs) that will say, I love this. You are talking my language. You know, this is my heart work where they just don't shy away from it, right? Where they actually embrace it and walk towards it. So when we actually go and sign on with hospitals that want to do the Harmony program, for example, we have what we call a U-Crew. And the U-Crew is uh, at least one person from every department, usually includes a practice manager, a DVM, a nurse, somebody on the front team or, you know, the phone staff that has already identified themselves as being passionate about end of life. Okay. And euthanasia. And then it's relatively easy to say, okay, you know, of you, who might be the right one to be triaging a lot of these phone calls during the day, right? And ideally, we need multiple people for bigger hospitals, for for specialty services, whatever. But yeah, a lot of times they do walk towards it. And if there isn't anybody that we have identified that is a natural, yeah, you know, naturally empathetic and compassionate in that way, which I tell you, it's hard not to find somebody like that in the vet field. We're all such good people. <laughs> right. That would say, well, here's what we're looking for. Here's what we're looking for is somebody that can really slow down, show that extra establishment of rapport where they're wanting to make the connections or good with communication. They ask open-ended questions and do, you know, repeat stories back and different things. There's just a lot of different communication skills. Mm-hmm. But, you know, ideally everybody knows them, right? Everybody learns them so that if there isn't a euthanasia attendant, that we can rely on any one of those five wonderful people sitting at the front desk that can handle those calls. But there are going to be some that are better than others. But all it really is is just good communication, understanding that we need to slow down, we need to quiet our space and really give this client the attention that they deserve to set this up in the right way. It's interesting because it reminds me of the fact that you go to these practices and there's someone who, as you said, it's their heart work. It speaks to them on a deep level. They love doing it. So they're, a lot of them may be naturally good at having these kinds of conversations, naturally good at asking those questions. Maybe that's why they've been led to that. But it sounds like also like emotional intelligence or crucial conversations or all the other things they pitch leaders and managers on. People can learn with good SOPs and good training. People can learn how to do these things that other people instinctively maybe naturally do. Absolutely. That's very well said. And then we're going to take it further than that, right? Because now we've scheduled the appointment and the client and the pet arrives at the front door. So in a perfect world, 
a euthanasia attendant. And by that, I mean that somebody who's with this family unit now all the way through, that's ideal. But regardless, we want a very compassionate person to greet them at the door and immediately escort them back to a comfort room, right? To the room that's now designated for euthanasia. So they can bypass the front room as much as possible and head to that sanctuary space where euthanasia is going to take place. It's in that room then that we've already established a very serene environment where we've got low lighting, where we've got uh, soft things like pillows and blankets. We've got mats down on the floor if we're gathering with a larger animal or a lot of people in the room and the floor just seems like the most appropriate space. Yeah. That we have biophilic elements in the room, such as plants, images of scenery and nature, or maybe even a water feature, something like that, right? So we, we can picture this room. It looks like a living room. It looks like your home away from home that we have created there in that hospital setting. The family is then there in the space, whether or not that's one person with the pet or five people. And then you've got a very compassionate staffer in the room that's now going to talk through how everything's going to unfold. They're going to talk a little bit about, you know, expectations. They're going to make sure all of the aftercare arrangements are in order, such as you know, cremation or burial, memorialization. Mm -hmm. And then if payment hasn't already been done, Brendan, then that can be done at that time. And then once paperwork and those things are done, now it's our time to fully focus with the pet. Now, I'm a big fan and advocate of doing as much over the phone as possible, phone or web forms and those things, right? So the family can think about that earlier than the the heat of the moment. And then If that's not done, then we can do it in that comfort room. But regardless, once that's done, we've established rapport. There's a lot of trust in the room. Everybody is relaxed as they possibly can be. Now it's our time to begin the actual euthanasia procedure. And that's going to include pre-euthanasia sedation or anesthesia that CADA advocates to be given in the room just, you know, to the patient, either under the skin or in the muscle, just a really good relaxant to get them into a deep sleep. And then some of the technical stuff begins like IV catheter placement, or even moving forward with what we call an intraorgan injection, where we can avoid the vein altogether. So the point of all this so far, hopefully that you're catching this theme that the bond is maintained all the way through. So once that pet walks into the building, their beloved family members are right there with them every step of the way and that we don't separate them. So we're going to use that comfort room from beginning to end. We don't advocate for pets to be brought back to the treatment area and things done there because that just separates that bond and, and it can break it at that time. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. 
To learn more, listen to a free training webinar or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. This is perfect because I have, okay, I want to throw a couple more grenades into the water here because you, again, I definitely saw the theme. So I wanted to ask about that payment aspect. So I know sometimes this is the end. Sometimes this may be a patient that hasn't been to this hospital or maybe has, but it may be a lifelong patient. There's not another patient. And this feels like the end. So do you have specific recommendations you make about do you ask for that payment before they show up? Do you really ask for that payment right there in the room while everything's going on? Do you have a salt or do you let people that kind of needs to be felt out? Is there a good SOP you recommend for that? Yeah, we love to have it asked and handled over the phone before the appointment. Okay. And when thinking about the logistics of that, what we're talking about is essentially taking a credit card and holding it on file until the appointment. Now that does make credit card fees go up because you're not actually swiping, putting it into a square or something like that. But there are ways to hold the number until the appointment is actually completed. Because a lot of people don't want to give the number ahead of time because they believe it's going to be run. Well, what if they change their mind? What if they decide they just want a consultation? Or what if they change their mind for aftercare? So same would be said for the veterinary team. They don't necessarily want to have to be canceling things out and doing something different. So the idea there is that a credit card number just goes on file. Then during the appointment, all we're really doing with the paperwork is confirming things. We're confirming the spelling of the pet's name if we have not seen them all of their life, right? Because sometimes this is a first-time client that is coming for euthanasia. So we're confirming names, spellings. We're confirming anybody that we can notify on the family's behalf. And we're definitely looking into the details for the aftercare. You know, who does the client want to work with for aftercare? Let's make the arrangements. Uh, If they don't have a preferred crematory, then the team usually recommends a crematory that they trust. Do they want private cremation, communal, where they don't have the ashes back? Who's making the paw print? What kind of urns do they want? That's, again, to your earlier point of it feels like a funeral home, right? Yes. And that is right now the way that vet med is designed. Now, I'm not necessarily a fan of it. I really think that we should be <laughs> leveraging more, more of these really wonderful, amazing crematories that are out there. that are so good at this, yeah. you know, to talk about aftercare. But right now, vet med still handles most of it internally. And that's fine. I just think in the near future, we're going to get better at that and start getting smarter and having the crematories handle more and more. Is there, and the very, before I completely interrupt you with my grenades, the thing that jumped out to me was you said, you know, sometimes there's a tent. I know I would have this tendency to a euthanasia appointment is fraught with possible emotion. It's fraught with emotion coming in and it can get, it can always, people can, it can get worse and people can feel out of control or get really emotional. And so I think sometimes they think we'll take the animal to the back. And if we're going to do that sedation, we'll do that and we'll set everything and then either invite the person back or bring the pet back. Once everything has been set right before the time, everything has kind of been set. We know the dog or cat has responded well to sedation because I know there's a serious, I mean, I've heard multiple stories. I'm sure you've had it. Sometimes cats and dogs react very badly to that sedation or they react very badly to that first needle. And it creates this horrible 
experience for the pet owner and the veterinary team also gets, I mean, it's sort of traumatizing for everybody. I don't think there's ways for sure to guard against that. Or maybe you do have SOPs that try to take care of to make sure that that sedation goes perfectly. But sometimes animals don't respond well to sedation and then they kind of freak out in the moment. They can, they certainly can. So it's about learning the right techniques to avoid that. You know, there are some medications that have more heat to them can cause a burning sensation. So we need to know how to overcome it and to resist or reduce restraint. So we're not doing too much forceful manipulation of the pet and causing stress. So, you know, I'm a huge advocate as so many are of the fear-free program right? The fear-free program is constantly teaching how to slow down, go at the pet's pace, look at what's important to the pet, ask questions to the client, such as, are they painful anywhere? Is there anywhere that we should avoid versus just kind of assuming that this is where the injection should be giving and all will be well. So, you know, really a lot of this is going to come down to the, the bigger overarching theme of time and space and a slow pace you know, I always advocate for euthanasias to be an hour long, right? Now, a lot of hospitals don't have that kind of time. They've only got a a half an hour time slot. Well, you can still do amazing things in 30 minutes and not have to rush. So perhaps when the pet comes in, for example, if we're short on time, rather than diving right into paperwork, we have the option to give a particular patient the sedative first, And then while they're just starting to welcome some of that medicine, maybe we quickly then go over paperwork, right? That still provides the pet time to welcome sedation or anesthesia, which we know is an important component. And we get paperwork done. We're all bonded. We're all together. Nobody's being separated. And that can help to keep those elements all in play, even if we don't have that full hour of time we're looking for. But to get back to your original question of, you know, what if we have a painful patient? We don't want clients seeing that. Yeah, we really just need to make sure we're learning those best approaches, that we're slowing down, taking our time. And I'm here to tell you, the vast majority, you know, 90% plus of my patients don't respond to sedation or anesthesia injections at all. Okay. At all. And therefore the benefits outweigh the cons, right? The pros are more than the cons in that. And that the risk is that if you don't provide sedation or anesthesia, you are going to have more restraint. You may have a situation where we're given euthanasia solution and an IV catheter to an awake animal. And unfortunately, the, you know, something happened with the injection. It leaks out into the vein. There's extreme pain. The animal vocalizes. So, I theorize, and I say theorize because I'm working on a study right now to actually look at this, but that a client would much rather have, if there's going to be something uncomfortable, they would rather have it be sedation than actual euthanasia, right? So if, if something's going to be painful, I theorize that they would rather have it be a sedative injection than the actual euthanasia drug itself, I think that adds a lot of guilt. It adds a lot of complexities. But again, when you do it the right way and you monitor your patient to make sure that they're not having things like nausea and breathing difficulty and the extremely rare seizure and those things, yeah, we need to stay in there. We need to monitor those patients. And what's actually very common is for hospitals to give drugs to the pet 
to their patient and then leave the room while they're falling asleep with the owner there sitting there. But we don't recommend that at all. The idea is not to leave your patient when they're in a delicate state, like falling asleep with drugs, is to actually stay in there and monitor them. So if something does go awry, the team can address it quickly. You dealt with this a little bit by talking about finding the people whose, you know, this feels like, again, the work that calls to them. These emotional exchanges, these things that happen, these powerful moments that happen are meaningful for them and for the clients. I know some veterinarians and veterinary team members, I see this sometimes pop up a little bit. Euthanasias are likely to make team members and veterinarians cry, and they struggle with, in that moment where we're giving the drugs and a pet is passing, a pet is dying, when the clients get really emotional, they can't help but get emotional. So they get very emotional in euthanasias, and I wouldn't want them to tamp it down, but do you sort of address... Do you address proper and improper emotional reactions to euthanasia? I don't know if there are improper. Everyone, you know, is free to react to the stuff. But I think they're sensitive. Veterans and veterinary team members are sometimes sensitive to how they're reacting because they don't want to bother the pet owner. They don't want to ruin the pet owner's experience here. They don't want to hurt them at their hard time. But sometimes they can't help but be emotional. How do you talk about that? How do you deal with that? Yeah. So when euthanasia is done the right way. Okay. Right. And by that, I mean, we're honoring the bond. We are maintaining a respectful, compassionate space. We're performing euthanasia the right way with the right techniques to minimize a bad death experience. Yeah. When all those boxes are checked throughout the appointment, the staff at the end of it should feel good about what they just did what they accomplished. And one of those, one of those components needs to be that the animal was ready for euthanasia, right? So what I'm talking about is avoiding things like convenience euthanasias and, and those that are going to hurt the heart of the veterinary team, right? Because those can linger where they don't want to euthanize it. They didn't think it was the right time. So when everybody's on the same page and things go smoothly, then the veterinary team after that appointment should feel good about what they just accomplished. Okay. Doesn't mean it's not, you know, laden sometimes with the sadness and those things, but it should help tremendously. When we don't have that good SOP in place and we're dropping the ball in a lot of different areas and, you know, the animal struggled or the client was really complicating and, you know, things just didn't flow as smooth as what the team would prefer, right. that then leads to more, you know, complicated emotions, right? They can lead quicker to the concept of compassion fatigue. Uh, another idea is like euthanasia related stresses. Yeah. So first of all, as long as the team knows how to do things right and correctly, they should be more sustainable and more resilient in this work. So that being said, There are teams that can still do it really, really well, but it just doesn't speak to them. They don't like it. They don't feel good about it. It just happens to be the culture of the hospital. One of the options, first of all, is to reduce the amount of euthanasias that they do. Okay. There are actually hospitals that don't do euthanasia at all. It's just simply not a procedure that they perform because they have found it is too difficult on the team, even if they're doing it right. Right. I'm guessing that. There probably was parts of the protocol that was missing 
that that's why they didn't want to do it anymore. And then if they learn how to do it the correct way, maybe they would implement it back in. But hey, it's okay. You know, there are hospitals now that can pick and choose to even do surgeries or do, you know, do a variety of procedures. They just say, we don't do that. And instead, they refer out to the experts that do. And you kind of touched upon that already, that there are experts out there now that they can send those appointments to who they know are going to take really good care of their clients and their patients, right? So that's a great thing. It's nice to have that option. But to come back around to how do we have these conversations is it's up to management, first of all, to identify those on the team that are going to struggle more with euthanasias and those who are going to be more drawn to it, more called to it. So we always advocate for when a team member is hired, is to ask them, is to just straight up ask them, how do you feel about euthanasia work? And what have been your experiences in the past? Because I don't know if you know this, but euthanasia is right up there in the top five appointments or or procedures that we perform in vet med. And I've heard it listed as the second most common procedure we do. That means that for the average hospital, that's going to be a touch point regularly in the day. Yeah. Right. That could lead to some compassion fatigue, burnout, and uh, these kind of, you know, complicating emotional states that we find ourselves in doing a lot of end of life work. So anyway, it's important to have that conversation with the new hires, ask them about previous experiences, ask them what they consider to be a good euthanasia, and then talk about volume, right? And what they can actually handle. So, you know, how many euthanasias do you think you can handle in a day, in a week, depending on what's normal for that hospital and actually get that in the record and monitor it and watch it. Because if we're pushing a staffer beyond their comfort level, they're probably going to start to burn out. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.